Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Stand, book one, chapters 35 to 42. Let's start the show. The 4th of July approaches, and the main characters are on the move. Larry and Rita make a harrowing journey out of New York City. Harold and Franny leave Maine in search of authorities who might know about the flu. Stu heads towards the East Coast and meets another survivor. Nick has a dream and sets out for Nebraska. Even Lloyd Henry is able to get out of jail and embarks for points unknown. We also get a chapter about other survivors of the flu who aren't going to have a role in the bigger drama to come. As always, a lot's going on in this section of the book. It is. Jay, when we divvied up this book, we sort of do it randomly at the beginning, like, hey, this seems like a good chunk of chapters to do. And we really sort of lucked out in how this worked out. So we had sort of the pre-apocalypse section, Mm -hmm. this like post-apocalypse, post-traumatic stress syndrome that we've talked about last time and this is sort of the next step of characters dealing with their situation but now moving on and and going somewhere and trying to take the next step in their adventure and so it's worked out really nicely and so i think we have a good base of things to talk about because all of our characters are as i said on the move and 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 going somewhere they don't necessarily all know where yet but they at least have a little bit of a plan yeah they're basically starting to form plans, even if they're so rudimentary. It's just like a direction. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to go that way and see what happens. But considering what they've all been through, maybe that's enough of a plan for now. Yeah. Like it's got to be better than this, right? Yeah. I'm going to change my scenery and see what happens. Yep. So we'll start with Franny and Harold because they actually seem to have the best laid plans, I would say. Yeah. Harold. It's interesting because his characterization has changed like that first time we met him, you and I were both sort of disgusted by by him and we're like, wow, this is a terrible character. But then this next time we meet him, we see that Harold does have a head on his shoulders and he does have a plan like, hey, I know that there is a government health institute here that would be dealing with this and I know it's in Vermont and let's get out a map and we can make it there and it's walkable and oh wait, let's even take mopeds. That's even another way we could do this. And so he does have a plan and it involves expertise. Mm -hmm. They're unaware of what else is going on in the world, you know? Yeah. You and I have to put ourselves in a mind that this is before the internet. So, you know, they're relying on actual maps and knowledge and, and, and hoping like, well, things must be better there. And so they're just on their way out. And so they're looking for that expertise because again, they're young enough that they're still thinking there's gotta be somebody in charge. Let's head towards that. Yeah, like uh, in a lot of these post-apocalyptic stories, they all seem to, all the ones I've read that have taken place before things like social media were Mm. ubiquitous, while there are these like pockets of survivors and things like that, eventually things would stop working if there's no power and no communication cables and, and things. But I imagine that as things started to fall apart, people today would still be in touch via Twitter or Facebook or what have you. Right. And they could say, I'm here, gather in this place, and others could come. But in the time period that this was written and then even revised to, such things never existed. And that's kind of like in, uh, you know, I Am Legend or even the, um, or Cloverfield. Like they're all sort of depending upon these shortwave radios and, mm, yeah. And, you know, AM broadcasts and stuff like that to, to find other human beings. And I just wonder if that would change with having something where like a smartphone that could connect to satellite relay in a cell tower. Right. If those things are still on, they ought to still work. Yeah. Assuming that the cell phone wasn't the source of the post-apocalypse, like there's a possibility that that would be the reason that there was an apocalyptic event, I, you know, someone should write something like that sometime. Yeah. About cell phones and how the cell phones cause the problems. The cell phones cause zombies to happen. And then if you use the cell phone, you become a zombie. I'd call that book 
my satellite phone. Uh, I was going to go for flip phone. (laughs) In in Franny and Harold's case, they're looking for that expertise. And Franny's specifically looking for some sort of authority. Yeah. Franny says, if the system of authority had temporarily broken down, they would just have to find the scattered others and reform it. It didn't occur to her to wonder why authority seemed to be such a necessary thing to have any more than it occurred to her to wonder why she had automatically felt responsible for Harold. It just was. Structure was a necessary thing. And that's sort of her way of dealing with this. Like, I'm going to either create my own structure, or if I can't have that, I'm going to go find it. And it must exist out there. And so that's why they're like, when Harold proposes this idea, she's all for it. Like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. And she uses the word authority, but I think what she's really thinking is society. Yeah. She wants some structure that is made up of groups of people working in unison and agreeing on, you know, some common goal. And she can't do that by herself. One person is not a society. No. And even two people is not a society. So they need more people and hopefully people who that know more than they do and are more informed than they are. And it's not that they have authority. It's just maybe they have the, the remnants of the old society so they can get a head start on a new one. Right. They are in the opposite situation of Rita and Larry. They're in a, if not quite rural, at least a small town in New England Mm -hmm. um, where they're the only survivors and they need to go somewhere to find this. Rita and Larry are in an opposite position where there are plenty of people still in New York. Yep. You and I try to figure it out. Like, even if 99% of the people in New York died, there would still be tens of thousands in New York City by the size of it. Yeah. And they encounter them and realize, wait a minute, we have people around, but these aren't necessarily the people we want to be with. And being in a giant city that is still filled with 99% dead people, but the other, you know, thousand peoples that are still alive are sort of going off the deep end. We might not want to stick around here. Right. And it's that many more people or that many more rotting corpses too. It's, yeah, you know, it's not a bunch of empty buildings all of a sudden. It's a, it's a bunch of dead people. Yeah. It's going to stink even more so than New York normally does. (laughs) Exactly. And so Larry's idea is, hey, let's head out for greener pastures, even if that's only going to be New Jersey, and and, and get out of Dodge. <laughs> but the problem with Larry is that he is now, or at least he feels, somewhat responsible for Rita. So similar to how Franny says that she feels sort of responsible for Harold and the two of them need to go out and do something, now that Larry has slept with Rita and has started to form some sort of relationship, he feels like I need to take care of her. But then he says to himself, how the hell am I qualified to take care of her when I can't even watch out for myself? We already have seen that Larry might not be the nicest of guys and not necessarily good about caring for others. He seems a little selfish. I think that selfish streak and that, that hard streak in Larry has been part of who he is for his whole life and confronted with Rita, who is at best sort of a difficult companion because Mm -hmm. of just how she engages the world and she's woefully unprepared mentally and physically for this type of struggle. This is an entirely foreign thing to her. I don't know that Larry's any better prepared, but he seems to just be, I don't know, more bullheaded and he's younger and he's maybe healthier. He's been doing a lot of other drugs, but he doesn't (laughs) seem to be hooked on pills the way Rita is. Right. It's a lot. And she is a stranger. And I think he resents the fact that, you know, he found one other human being that he could kind of count on. And now he just feels beholden. Yep. And he resents that. And he has somewhat of a plan, right? Like, all right, we're going to pack up our bags. We're going to travel as light as we can. We're going to stop at the sporting goods store and get some necessary supplies. And then we're going to head out of town. We're going to go through the Lincoln Tunnel and boom, we're out of the city. And once we get on the other side, we'll figure out where to go from there. And things will be hunky-dory, in his opinion. And uh, yeah, he just has this this weight car- dragging him down as he's doing that. Yeah, and that kind of drove me crazy. Like, they actually went into a sporting goods store to prepare for this journey. And then there's that later scene when Rita has terrible shoes for walking. 
Right. And she's like shredding her feet. And Larry's in this ecstasy of rage. And I understand why he would be angry, but I also kind of feel like he messed up. Why didn't he get really good hiking boots for both of them when they're in a sporting goods store? I can't imagine saying, we're going to hike out of New York and to New Jersey and perhaps beyond and not think about the shoes on their feet. And it seems like Larry just has whatever he was wearing too. Like he didn't think of it either. He just happened to be wearing something a little sturdier because, you know, men's shoes are more often more functional than than stylish. And so it just didn't even occur to him. So he's just as guilty in this particular transgression as Rita is. And and I think he kind of catches that. He catches himself a little bit later, but this is after things have gone really bad and he basically just sends her away. Right. Once he's alone again, he's he has a chance to reconsider his position and realize that maybe he could have handled that differently. Maybe. Let's talk a little bit about Stu. Stu has left where Harold and Franny are are heading towards. Mm -hmm. Stu just needs to, I think he puts it like he wants to just walk it off. He figures, I'm just going to walk to the East Coast. And I'm not going to think in all that time. And I'm just going to walk and that'll do my body good. It'll do my mind good and I'll be healed. And along the way, he meets Glenn, who is a older college professor of sociology who has lots of thoughts on lots of different things. He does indeed. And Stu is willing to listen as Stu does. And it's at that point that Stu realizes that he is lonely and he needs somebody. I want to say he needs somebody to talk to, but he doesn't because Stu doesn't talk. Stu just needs somebody to be with at least. Uh Uh-huh. And Glenn's that person. One of the things about this conversation with Stu is that, I'm sorry, this conversation between Stu and Glenn is that Glenn immediately becomes the author proxy. He just begins spouting all of these things like, what if this and what if that? Have you taken the time to think about this repercussion? And that's because these are things that are swirling around in King's mind as he's writing the book, or maybe as he was thinking of the idea of the book. Right. You wipe out the po- 99% of the population, what happens next? Here's Glenn, like, we've got doomsday weapons, and we've got unused machinery, and we've got a disease that is still around. We just happen to be immune to it, but we're not immune to trichinosis. And he uses the example, like, what if somebody's dying of tonsillitis or something like that, right? It's like the simplest things are still just as deadly to us, the survivors. And uh, we need to be careful because we don't have the support system of hospitals and, and doctors and things. It just puts a lot of ideas in our heads, too, that otherwise would be difficult for King to introduce. And he's got this perfect foil in that Stu's willing to just sit there and listen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What would happen if there were two groups that started to form societies and couldn't talk to each other? Or what if somebody collects these types of things and the other group has this? Would there be war? Would there be trade? All of these things. And then Glenn further emphasizes the fact that in the story time, they're heading towards the end of the century. And he talks about how at ends of centuries, different things happen where there's cults that spring up or major events that people see as signs, you know, whether that be Jack the Ripper at the end of the 19th century or or something else. And he says, maybe that's what all this is happening because we're ending not only the end of a century, but the end of a millennial. And this is what people are thinking about and how this impacts society. And so it's all of these things that that Glenn's able to talk about. And like you said, it's a proxy for King being able to say, these might be some of the major ideas I'm going to explore here in a in an exposition dump wave that comes across really well. Yeah. When I was reading it, because we've talked so much about John D. McDonald lately and the Travis McGee novels, it made me think that Glenn is Meyer from the Travis McGee books. Meyer being Travis McGee's friend, who's a academic, he's an ec- economist, and he's often the one who is intelligent in a different way than Travis McGee. Travis McGee has, mm-hmm. you know, street smarts and is worldly and and has been around the block and was in the military and has seen a lot. Whereas 
Meyer is this academic who looks at things from a very scientific perspective. And Glenn seems to be that same sort of character to Stu in this case, where Stu can sit there and, and Glenn can sort of spew off these these theories and see where it goes from. And Glenn also helps to educate the reader a little bit because right or wrong, accurate or inaccurate, this is King's idea of what will happen in the apocalypse that he set up. So by giving Glenn this voice and saying, what if this, what if that, and then surmising some of those outcomes, it lets us think about, oh, okay, this is how societies deal with each other. This is how group A might deal with group B. And these are potential outcomes. These are, these are things that sociologists have studied and, and established as patterns of human behavior. So we don't, as the reader, need to be educated about that because here's Glenn just filling us in so that later in the story, if there's group A and group B, we have that, that knowledge to, to work from. Right. So the last main character who uh, is on the move and in search of something is our good friend Lloyd, who is stuck in a jail. And he's starting to get very angry now that he's stuck in the jail and he's starving mm -hmm. and getting dehydrated and eating rat and worrying about the guy in the in the cell next to him and whether or not he's going to have to eat him. And he gets stuck on this one idea, and that idea is the key. And the key is another way of symbolizing society and authority. And in Lloyd's head, the key has this symbolic talismanic power. Yeah. And he says, the key was your reward for playing by the rules. And people have the key, and so they have the power to let you in, let you out. And he's stuck there because he doesn't have a key. He can't get out of the cell. And the people who have the key are gone. And that makes him more angry because he realizes just because they have the key doesn't mean that they're allowed to treat him badly. Like even as a prisoner, he should have rights. They shouldn't be able to just go away and leave him locked up to starve, he says. And he has this idea in his mind that this key is all-encompassing and it's just sort of driving him insane. It's, it's interesting because this disease kills people pretty quickly, but it shouldn't have killed everybody in the jail it, like all at once in just a few hours. There had to have been a time when somebody who did have a key, not this metaphorical key, but an actual key, could have said, are there any people here who aren't dead? We should let them out. We should open the doors because the, otherwise they're, they're trapped in, in these cells. Right. And nobody did that. And I totally agree with Lloyd for his frustration and, and fury about that. That was one of the most inconsiderate things that his jailers could do is to just, well, I got the sniffles, so whatever. Yep. <laughs> and then they go home and take a nap and die. Not one person thought about it. It's kind of amazing. We've actually seen this twice before. So there's been, in our very first chapter, when Charles Campion leaves the base where the, the super flu has escaped, he has put his duties aside. Yeah. He, he was supposed to stay there. He was supposed to be locked down. And instead, he made this, some would say, selfish choice to get his family and get out. And that's what ultimately started this flu off, is that one person thinking, well, somebody else will handle this. I need to think about myself. That's contrasted with Nick Andros, who was in this position where he was the jailer. Mm -hmm. um, he had been deputized by the sheriff, and he eventually does let the people out of the jail. You know, He tries to feed them. He tries to keep them alive. And when he realizes that's not doing any good, he, he frees that last prisoner. We see that that didn't happen in Lloyd's case. Like... All these people, what for whatever reason, they either died or they said, not my job, or I'm just going to worry about myself. And Lloyd's the one who's stuck in the jail cell gnawing on the shin of, of the guy next to him. Uh -huh. <laughs> but he does have a way out, doesn't he, Jay? I mean, somebody comes along to, to help him out, and he even has a key. Yeah. Our, our old buddy, Randall Flagg, just shows up in the jail. Somehow can walk right up to his bars of his cell. Yep. When every other door between that and the entrance to the jail, I'm sure, was locked too. Yeah, and not only locked, but not locked with a key either. Mm -hmm. They're all on some sort of electro-timed device, those types of doors. But yet, when Flag shows up, he has an actual key that he sort of, I got the feeling like he was like twirling it around, like rolling, twirling his bullet in his fingers. 
um, because Lloyd becomes hypnotized almost by this key that Flag has. And he's able to get him out and allow Lloyd to go out. And I don't know if Lloyd's going to be in search of authority or or society, but he at least has Flag with him and he's devoted himself to Flag. Flag is a real son of a bitch here too, like, which is part of what makes this incarnation of Flag uh, so entertaining. Yes. He stands there and he's like talking about this wonderful roast beef sandwich he just had. <laughs> and he's like, hey, that guy's that guy's calf looks a little bit thin. You weren't gnawing on that, were you? <laughs> oh, geez, you must be so hungry. We got to get you out of here. But then it's like, I'm not letting you pass me. I'm not opening your door unless, 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 right? And he already knows how much power he has over Lloyd. And he can't. It's not that he can't stop himself. I mean, that this is his bread and butter. This is he. It's like he's he's an emotional vampire kind of thing. Like he's like, yeah, I am gonna stick the knife in and twist it a bunch of times, and then then all of a sudden I'll be his hero, and he will follow me to the ends of the world. It's good stuff. It's yeah. a great. It's a great scene. So Jay, we get one of those great king overview chapters of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it happens right after the Glenn and Stu conversation of, hey, what's going to happen with society? And as you pointed out earlier, what if somebody's dying of tonsillitis right now? What's going to happen? Yep. King gives us this chapter of people who survived the flu, who are immune to it or are able to survive, but die anyways. It's sort of the second, the second wave of death. And it's for a bunch of stupid reasons, right? Some guy has a heart attack, somebody falls down a well, somebody breaks a leg, somebody shoots somebody, like just stupid reasons. Mm-hmm. It's very much reminiscent of, for me of sort of Kurt Vonnegut's So It Goes, yeah, right? He, like it's just sort of, King ends a lot of these like mini, mini sections of this chapter with no great loss as these people just sort of up and die. Um, but we get we get to know them, which is what's interesting, like King does, where, you know, even though you only spend two or three pages with them, you get to know them pretty well enough to, hey, I understand this character. I see what this person's going through. And then, boop, they're gone. No great loss. Yep. As uh, we often talk about when we discuss these overview chapters by King, where we're basically, it's just King talking to us. I really enjoyed this section, even though it was the who's who of who's dying <laughs> after the the super flu killed everybody. So like none of these had happy endings, but I really enjoyed it. In fact, some of them were really funny. Like this was a chance for King to insert humor, dark humor, but still humor. The one woman who was afraid to leave her house and then she went and dug up this old pistol and then went outside and said, you know, so their world, I'm going to sit out here and I'm going to live my life and I got this gun to protect myself. And within an hour of doing that and making that decision, she decides that she already has somebody she needs to, to kill to protect <laughs> herself. And in the process, you know, this old gun explodes in her hand and kills her. Yep. And possibly the person she was aiming it at, too. We don't know that. But it's just like, it's kind of a tragic end for this, this woman who managed to survive the super flu and was ready to just enjoy her life without having everything else that she didn't like about the world anymore. Yep. But the way King writes it, I couldn't help but kind of get the, get a little giggle out of this thing. It's like a little Twilight Zone episode in miniature. Yeah. This character, she's scared of the world, and finally she gets to a place where the world isn't as scary, and she dies anyways. Yep. It, it's amazing what, what King can do in these little chapters in, in just a few pages to just bring this stuff to life and really help us understand what Glenn was saying in that abstract notion and just, you know, putting it into words. And here's a real life example of how it goes and what's going to happen. And it does bring this more from, you know, it's easy to say, you know, hundreds of millions of people are dead. And now let's look at the father who lost his wife and his multiple kids and just decides to run and run and run and run and run. And then boom, has a heart attack and dies. But he was basically trying to kill himself. Yeah. He couldn't bear to go on living, but because of his religious beliefs, he wouldn't just commit suicide. So right. he ran until his body quit. Yep. So, Jay, we have talked about, despite the fact that 99% of the world has died, for the most part, this book has been realistic. 
there's no ghosts, there's no vampires, there's no telekinetic girls, no dragons, no dragons. It's been fairly realistic, but I think we've gotten to the point where it's time to start talking supernatural. Yeah. Like, I think we crossed the line. We sort of hinted at it with Lloyd and Randall, but I think now it's time to get a little bit deeper into it. Absolutely. This is a turning point in the story where we, we've we traversed from just an epic to a, a fantasy, and it is with the introduction of, of the magic. And as you just mentioned, we've seen a little bit of magic on from Flag, but he's not the only character who seems to have magic at his or her disposal. And the other one seems to be Mother Abigail. We haven't really met her, nope. but our characters have been dreaming about her. We've seen repeated imagery in all of our characters' dreams, and some of them have spent more time thinking about Flag. Some of them have spent some time thinking about Mother Abigail. And Nick finally has a dream where not only can he hear and speak, but he hears and then speaks to this woman he's never met in real life and has a conversation. And she introduces herself and tells him to come see her. Mm -hmm. And he knows where she is based on this dream. This, on its own, could just be a dream. But because we as the audience you know, are aware of the other characters having related dreams, we know it's more than that. This is definitely supernatural stuff going on, and it's really interesting. The rest of Nick's dream revolves around Flag and is very much in the same sort of vein as Satan tempting Jesus. Mm-hmm. And again, I am not the most religious of people and aren't going to be able to speak chapter and verse to the Bible, but the fact that Flag takes Nick up onto a high peak overlooking the land and saying, you could be able to hear, you could be able to speak, I can give this to you. You could have this if you wanted it. It's very similar to Satan trying to tempt Jesus in a similar way. Mm-hmm. You know, all this could be yours if, and Nick turns him down. He realizes that if he goes that way, it's going to be bad. And that this other vision of Mother Abigail is the one that he should follow. And so we end the section with Nick saying he's going to head out to Nebraska. So he has a much more distinct plan than the others that we talked about. Like, I'm going to Nebraska, and I'm going to meet somebody there, and I have a feeling I know who it is. Yeah. I think it's important to note that Nick is not in the least bit tempted by Flag's offer. Mm. He sees the, the immense offer for what it is, and without any hesitation, says no. Right. This is King giving us a, a very distinct, you know, answer. Where does Nick fall on this, on the spectrum of good and evil? Yeah. He's all the way on the good end. Yep. We already knew that, which is why it's not like a big surprise. But not all of the other characters are going to be so cut and dry. Right. Taking somebody like Nick, who has never been able to hear and never been able to speak, and understands enough of, of what that missing pieces in his life and then saying i could just snap my fingers and give those to you and then he still says no that's pretty remarkable right so flag is able to manifest some more magic we already talked a little bit about getting through the prison and then getting lloyd out with this key that doesn't really exist for a lock that doesn't exist and he's able to open the door and get lloyd out but Mm -hmm. flag seems to get around like we see him bounce around from being somewhere in, in Colorado or Utah where he, he gets access to a car, and then he's in this prison in the Southwest where Lloyd is. But it seems as if he's even where Larry is in New Jersey. So after Rita sort of meets the end of the road, Larry's camping out in a gazebo or something in, in, the, in the middle of a small town, and he has this weird feeling that somebody's nearby, and it seems to be Flag. I don't have any doubt that it's Flag, and this is another one of Flag's magical powers, apparently, because he really does get around. He always shows up on foot, which, by the way, makes me really wonder why we had that whole passage about <laughs> him getting a car. Right. <laughs> He's never been in a car since. Like, like he got a car and drove down the road and scene ends, and then he's always on foot Right. <laughs> uh, every time we, we meet him. But 
Maybe he'll be in the car later. I don't remember. He shows up like he's been walking forever. When he gets to Larry, when he gets to Nick, it's like he he approaches on foot. Yep. But it's not possible that he walked all the way there. It's not possible that he even drove there and then got out of the car a mile up the road and walked the rest of the way. He's just like, poof, there, last few steps. Hey, can I tempt you with things you like? And you get an answer, and then he moves on. I thought it was interesting that he found, like he was aware of Larry. He found Larry. He approached Larry. But as far as we know, they had no interaction. It was almost as if Flag, unlike with Nick, where he said, here are all these temptations. Will you take them? He found Larry and he said, I'm not even going to try. Yeah. He just like shrugged and turned around. So what does that tell us about Larry? Is, is Larry all the more impenetrable to temptation and, and evil? Or is there just something about him that really like was a deterrent to, to flag? Mm. Uh, I don't know. Be interesting to find out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what we'll find out about that. It's all sort of come to a head here where everyone's having these dreams of flag and we see flag sort of manifest himself more in these dreams and, and mm-hmm. you know, and Nick's obviously become becomes real. I forget which character said this, but they described these flag dreams as like no other dream they've ever had, but somehow it's like all of them as if it were the sum of all bad dreams. And I thought mm-hmm. that was just a superb way of describing flag. He's not just a bad dude. He's the sum of all bad dreams. Yeah, that's a great line. All right. Well, all this magic brings to mind the Dark Tower where we had plenty of magic. So I think it might be time to talk a little bit about our Dark Tower thinnies. So you hinted at this a little bit earlier, Sean, but I thought this was a a really straightforward thinny. The key that flag holds changes form several times in that scene. Mm. He was also like kind of rolling it over his knuckles and through his hand over and over again. First, it looked like a key. Then it looked like a skull. Then it looked like a bloody half-closed eye. That bloody half-closed eye, that's the sickle of the Crimson King, right? Yeah. If Stephen King had not thought of it as that yet... I can't imagine he didn't pull that imagery from the sentence and decide that's what the Crimson King is going to have people wear as an emblem of devotion or whatever. I see this as a direct, direct Dark Tower thinny. Yeah. Both Larry and Rita reference Lord of the Rings as they're getting ready to leave New York City. And we know that Stephen King thinks of the stand in the Dark Tower as his Lord of the Rings. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of overlap there. One of the lines that comes through that seems almost like it could be a description of the Dark Tower is there were none of those in New York, but so much had changed. So much was out of joint that it was impossible not to think of it in terms of fantasy. And as you said, we've made this jump from what had been an epic story into this fantastical story here. And they're referencing it exactly. And all these characters, save for Stu, who's deciding to go towards the East Coast, are starting to head west, right? Mm-hmm. which is a, a very American thing to do, but also a very Lord of the Rings thing to do is head head west at the end. So we'll see what happens with this. Another thingy for me was when Harold was on the top of the barn, there was so much description of the barn and the contents of the barn that it reminded me very much of Last Rung on the Ladder. Mm. And that isn't really directly connected to the Dark Tower, but it it's another Stephen King story that, uh, I don't know, maybe just because... I didn't grow up or spend a lot of time in and around barns and hay bales and things like that. So anytime King now mentions a barn or a ladder in a barn, I'm going to think of that story. It seemed like a, uh, a a connection to me. Yeah. And if you want to hear more about our thoughts on that story, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon where you can hear a bonus episode on Last Rung of the Ladder. Yeah, it's a good story. It was a very good story. So this isn't necessarily dark tower related but it is sort of other worlds than these related we had talked about in the story Ur that one of the stories that the narrator comes across is a Hemingway book called Cortland's Dogs that never existed and Mm -hmm. it had that great opening line about the different types of dogs that a man has in his life 
And at one point, when Stu is coming down the road, the, he doesn't meet Glenn immediately. He meets his dog. Yeah. He sees it and he says, it was a grinning dog. And he says, a grinning dog is either a biting dog or a damned good dog. And this didn't look like a biting dog. And I'm like, that could have totally fit into that Ur Hemingway Cortland's dog book because that, that's just a great line. Yeah. And of course, that ends up being Kojak, who is Glenn's dog. Although it's Glenn's adopted dog. Like, he recognizes the dog from being around town, but. Kojak wasn't his name. He just named it Kojak. Right. Which to the younger folks here, Kojak was a police show back in the 70s starring Telly Savalas. That's right. Another Dark Tower thingy is when Larry and Rita were making their way through parts of Manhattan. They came upon a man hung from a lamppost at 5th and East 44th below the park and in a once congested business district placard with the single word looter hung around his neck mm. uh, when i read that i just couldn't help but think of lud yeah there are a lot of people hung from street posts in lud and lud was kind of the futuristic duplicate of manhattan yep so not hard to see manhattan post-apocalypse sliding right into a lud-like place i think larry was pretty smart in saying let's get out of here as soon as possible <laughs> That's not the only weird thing they encounter in New York. So there's another, they run into a man who offers, what, like $15,000 for time with Rita, he offers. Yeah. And I think it was like a million dollars. It was like a, a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah. It was an indecent proposal. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. They're they're right to get out of the city. There's a, a reference to the Morlocks from the H.G. Wells time machine story. Yeah. Which, of course is a direct influence to King for his slow mutants. I mean, even King talks about them as they're basically the Morlocks. Yeah, absolutely. The The last thing that I have in Thinnies is, I don't know, somewhat questionable. Like, maybe it's this is just something that is fun to talk about, but the hymn that Mother Abigail is singing when Nick dreams uh, about her and, and meets her in his dream, there's a line in it that mentions roses. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the son of God discloses. I kind of wonder, like, King could have chosen almost any other hymn to have Mother Abigail sing, but he chose this one that was relating God and roses. And I can't help but think about the Dark Tower when King talks about roses. Yeah. Felt, it felt like a thinny to me. Yeah, I'll allow it. All right. All right. I think it's time for her. what uh, somebody reached out to us just today and said is one of their new favorite sections, and that's yucking it up. <laughs> awesome. I'm so glad that this is really finding a, a, some fans in our, our listeners. So I'll start. Rita dies. She overdoses on pills. Whether it was intentional or not is really left vague but i think larry at least thinks that it it was probably intentional hmm. as much as larry's thinking about it right like larry is actually not thinking about what's happening to rita he's really thinking about wanting to sleep with her again that morning but when he opens up the tent and looks in rita's eyes were cloudy dull marbles behind half-closed lids and her mouth was filled with the green puke she had strangled on he hated a puke worse than anything, and then he thought, but I was going back in there to fuck her, man. And everything came up in a loose rush as he crawled away from the streaming mess crying and hating the cruddy taste in his mouth and nose. That's a little too vivid for my imagination, King. Yeah. Especially since I think Larry was completely naked at this point. Yeah, that's going to come up in my fun stuff, but I, I, I'll, I'll give it to you now. There are certain images in this book that have always sort of stuck in my mind. And for whatever reason, and I wish it wasn't the case, Larry standing totally naked as the sun rises, singing the national anthem at the top of his lungs while uh, <laughs> sporting a erection is one of those. And yeah, that was that's what happens right before this scene. So, yep, too many vivid imageries in in my <laughs> mind. So my entry into the yucking it up section is... When Larry is crossing the Lincoln Tunnel while he's still alone, 
he comes across several dead bodies and most of them he's able to either get around or, or step over. But eventually he gets to the point where he comes across a pile of bodies and there's no way for him to move around them and he can't step over them. So he has to, he has to just walk on them. And because they've been dead for a while, they're in various states of decomposition. And at some point, the line is, he began to struggle across the soft yet stiff barricade of bodies. His foot punched through into some dreadful sliminess, and there was a gassy, putrid smell that he barely noticed. Oh. Yeah. Just picturing his foot sinking into somebody's chest cavity, or whatever it was. Like, yikes. Yeah, so I've, I've hinted at this numerous times throughout the series, especially since we started covering The Stand, but this is the scene that has stayed with me the longest in all the King stuff, is that trek through the Lincoln Tunnel, which again, it could have fallen into Thinney's because it's reminiscent of Roland and Jake going through the tunnels underground, but it has always scared me, and it has always stayed in my mind as just sort of this horrifying, scary thing, and whenever I go through a tunnel, I automatically think of this scene and it oh, freaks wow. me out. Yeah. And just today I saw on Twitter that the Lincoln Tunnel was flooding, which if I had known about that, that would have scared me as well. They showed like water coming in and I'm like, oh yeah, that would be uh, not great either. Oh man. Yeah. So you can support the show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, including bonus podcast episodes, such as those on Last Rung on the Ladder, which we discussed earlier, and The Dark Man, a Randall Flagg prequel, by becoming a patron to the show. Visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. Sean, is it time for fun stuff? Yeah, we've got a lot of it, Jay. I mean, we love this book. We both love this book, and this section of the book was great. So, of course, we got a lot of fun stuff. Let's get into it. Again, this book was written in the 70s. It now takes place in the 90s. It was really set in the 80s. They mentioned at some at some point a character named John Bearsford Tipton, who's from an old TV show. I think Rita mentions it, and Larry's like, I don't know who that is. And King either spelled it wrong or is meant to show that Larry doesn't know it. But John Bearsford Tipton was a character on an old show called The Millionaire, which is in the golden age of television, like 1955 to 1960. And it was about a guy who gave millions of dollars to random people to see what effect it would have on their lives. And Rita was making a reference to that. I think part of it is supposed to show Reed is a hell of a lot older than Larry. Um, but just this random piece of trivia information that King has. I just love that sort of trivial knowledge. Uh, something that I couldn't help laughing about, um, and I, I laughed about a similar joke earlier in our own episode, was that when Larry emerged from the tunnel, he said that New Jersey never smelled so good. <laughs> Which, as somebody from the New York City area... There, it's there's just like a built-in like let's just make cracks at new jersey's expense like it just yeah. like we don't really mean anything by it but you know it's just like that sort of like neighbor rivalry type of thing an easy target yeah after initially franny being you know very disgusted and put off by harold uh, she's come around a little bit and says you're okay harold maybe not great but okay in fact considering the circumstances and all I'd have to say that right now, you're one of my favorite people in the whole world. I think Harold actually takes that sort of okay, but like, what a backhanded compliment all that is. Yeah. yeah if, you, if you were the last guy on earth, I, you'd be my favorite person. And guess what? You are the last guy on earth, as far as I know. Something that I guess I might have otherwise put into uh, Dark Tower Thinnies, uh, just because of the connection, is... Um, a reference to Rimfire Christmas, which is a book written by, uh, as written in the uh, in the book in here, is written by that woman in Haven, and it's a reference to Bobby Anderson from the Tommyknockers, who is herself an author. Mm. We have, with this line, established that the world that the Stand is in has an author that King has written about uh, his own book about. So it's yes. Like, once again, all these wonderful worlds colliding and overlapping and, and intersecting. All right. So we've talked a little bit before about how there are some things that King has updated and some things that there haven't. And one of the things that should have been updated but, but probably wasn't was the reference to 45 singles and the singles that are done by people like the Osmonds, Leif Garrett, John Travolta, and Sean Cassidy. 
that skew's really old. How about throwing a, some Duran Duran or Prince or Madonna in there, King? Yeah. Update at least one of them. Yeah, come on. So one that really caught my attention and maybe would only catch my attention is that at one point, King mentions Toby Harris Gambling Casino. And I know that there's a Harris Casino in Las Vegas, but Toby Hara didn't seem right. And Toby Hara was a third baseman for the Cleveland Indians. Um, I think he then got traded to the Rangers at some point. But as far as I know, that's the only Toby Hara that exists, and he never owned a casino. So I'm not sure if King had baseball on the brain or what, but I don't think that there's a Toby Hara casino. And Toby Hara being one of my favorite players from when I was a young kid, it really sort of stuck out to me as a weird error. Hmm. But a fun one. When uh, we first meet Glenn and he's kind of introducing himself to Stu, he has a, a very long-winded, as Glenn tends to be, description of himself. And, and he ends on the, this idea that all of his colleagues at the, at the school thought he was a lunatic. And then goes on to say the strong possibility that they were right did nothing to improve our relations. <laughs> at least he's self-aware yeah and i love the fact that you know i don't think glenn's a lunatic we haven't spent much time with him but i just think he's he's not even eccentric he's what he probably was was somebody who was far better studied and well-versed in his subject matter than many of his colleagues were and maybe they didn't like him for that maybe they resented him for that so they found other things to just like not like him. You know? Yeah. And he he just felt disconnected from from his peers in that way. But I think it's fun that he's he's like, yeah, you know what? I, I fine, I am a lunatic. Call me crazy. So you mentioned this in passing earlier when Flag is tempting Lloyd and talking about the the sandwich that he's going to eat and just driving Lloyd crazy. And I was thinking after reading it that we should start a Stephen King cookbook because this is the second sandwich that's detailed in, in pretty clear ingredients and how to make it. And this is a nice rare roast beef sandwich on Vienna bread with a few onions and lots of Gildan's spicy brown mustard. Mm. And again, another reference to Gildan's. The, there was one earlier as well. I was actually at the store today because I have promised to make these sandwiches. And when I was there, I did not see Gildan Spicy Brown. They do not make it anymore. So I'm I'm trying to determine, should I just get a Gildan's mustard or if I should look for another spicy mustard? But I will return to you with reviews of these sandwiches as we put together our Stephen King cookbook. I would say you should go with the Gildan's and just get the the... The closest thing that Golden's makes. Okay. The closest the, to a to a brown. And if it's not spicy, yeah. either put some sriracha on it to, to add a little spiciness, but at least I'd get the Gildan's brown. I mean, that's what Trash Can Man would do. If he happened to have sriracha, he would add sriracha, I'm pretty sure. I, I should get a, a wristband like WWTCMD. <laughs> what would Trash Can Man do? Yes. Somehow, I don't think that that would end up well. When Franny and Harold were, were plotting their route to Vermont to go find authority, as we talked about earlier, they were checking maps and atlases and, and trying to figure out the best way there because they knew that it would be hard going on foot or on bicycles or what have you, even on mopeds, which they finally settled on. They were kind of shocked, even though they, they lived their whole lives in this, in this, play, this part of Maine that how far away Vermont was. And mm. they, they, when they realized that it was over 300 miles to travel, they were shocked. And I couldn't help but think that, you know, if they could consult Mrs. Todd, maybe they would get a nice little shortcut, which yeah. is another Patreon bonus episode when we talk about Mrs. Todd's shortcut. It seems like it can't be an episode of The Stand without just discussing masturbation. And or at least King bringing it up again, but this time it's with Stu and Harold, and we are starting to get the inklings and the beginnings of a love triangle between Harold and Franny and Stu. Although triangle might be a little bit tough because it doesn't seem like anybody likes Harold, so it might just be it might just be a love line between Stu and Franny with Harold looking in on it. But Stu has to take Harold to the side and say, "Hey, 
I'm not gonna, I'm not moving in on, on Franny. I know that you're being protective of her, uh, but I, I'm not moving in on her and you don't have to be afraid of me. And really neither one of us should be talking about us possessing or owning Franny because she's her own woman and she's going to do what she wants. And besides we're guys, uh, we should never, never go to a girl unwillingly. We, sh- we could always go to the hand if necessary. Just more masturbation talk from King. Yeah. Why, wise words from Stu. Wise words indeed. So I have, I have one final fun stuff. So I think this is another one of Glenn's like ponderings where he says, most of the societies that form are apt to be primitive dictatorships run by little Caesars, unless we're very lucky. And of course, when he's talking about run by little Caesars, I'm thinking pizza, pizza. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to be like the little Caesar society versus like the Papa John society? <laughs> little dominoes out <laughs> little, over here. Little dominoes fiefed them. <laughs> the pizza hut kingdom. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, with that, we're going to end this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Stand, book two, chapters 43 through 45. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. That's the Lurleen episode, right? I finally bagged me a homer.